Well, good morning. Welcome to Fox Valley Church. I'm Brad. I'm the worship pastor here, and I get to close out our series of Jonah. We've spent the last three weeks, and this will be the fourth installment of our series studying the amazing book of Jonah. And we've seen all these different characteristics of God that we're learning and growing, and we're going to be reminded of those things today. There's so much to unpack this morning, so I need you with me for the next 30 minutes uh, as we really dive in. But if you haven't been with us the past few weeks or you missed a week, I want to just do a quick recap, just a really brief recap of what we've seen uh, God do. So uh, Jonah is a prophet, and as a prophet, he would have been God's messenger. So we hear a story about Jonah, and what's unique about this prophet is he's the only prophet, the only prophetic book where the emphasis is not on the words of the prophet, but on the life of the prophet. So we have a story about Jonah, and the first week we saw him as the disobedient prophet. God called Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach. Well, Jonah didn't want to do that, right? Because as Jonah would have been uh, familiar and keen to sending a message to the Israelites, but not other people, and certainly not the big bad people of Nineveh, right? Israel's biggest enemy. So Uh, Jonah decides that's not his plan for his life, and he goes the opposite direction, and God sends this storm when Jonah's on a boat. A storm comes, and Jonah gets thrown overboard, and then God commands a fish to come and swallow Jonah. A couple weeks ago, we saw Jonah as the disciplined prophet. God meets Jonah in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, and Jonah eventually says this prayer to God, this thanksgiving that's filled with scripture, a beautiful poem, and he says, I'll do what you've commanded me to do. Last week, we saw Jonah as the dynamic prophet, right? Preaching a five-word sermon in Hebrew, or maybe much longer. Either way, God used him in a dynamic way because what we saw was the entire city of Nineveh repent and believe God. Crazy stuff. Even Jonah had a hard time believing God, right? But God used him in a dynamic way, and today we're going to see Jonah as the disappointed prophet. I'm going to pray for us, but I want to encourage you, if you're able, to put your palms like this as I pray. Father, God, we want to come to your word, palms up this morning. God, God, palms up representing hearts that are surrendered to you, representing soft hearts that want to grow, that want to learn, that want to be molded into the image of Jesus. So God, would you do what only you can do, and that's change our hearts and grow us in our affection for you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. 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 Well, I want to encourage you now to turn to Jonah chapter 4. And as you're doing that, it's, it's right after Obadiah and right before Micah. And as you're pulling that out, we just heard about one of our values at Fox Valley is local and world outreach. Uh, one of our other values, our first value, is the preeminence of God's word. And that means that we believe this is true. It's God breathes. It's God's words for us. And, and the purpose of the Bible is to reveal God's character and to reveal his purposes for your life. So as you hear this this morning, as we study this together, God is trying to reveal his character to you and his purpose for your life. Before we read uh, chapter four, let me just do a quick recap, the last verse of chapter three. I think this will set us up. Are you ready to hear God's word? Amen. Let's go. 310, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. That's where we left off in chapter 3. Now let's go to chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? 
That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. It's ridiculous, right? Jonah is very, very upset I, I try to put myself in Jonah's shoes, and I'm like, I would feel so successful, right, being used by God, and this whole city comes to repentance. Like, I can't imagine preaching a sermon that's successful and then being ticked off about it. But that's what's happening with Jonah right here, and we see his real motives. We see his real motives. If you didn't catch on to it earlier, now, like, it's all out there to bear. Maybe he was holding it a little internally. He's letting it go. Now he shows that he wasn't afraid for his life. He wasn't scared of the Ninevites. Ultimately, he did not want God to forgive them. He did not want God's grace to reach them. Maybe the Ninevites would repent and God would save them. And this is what we see. Now, I want to highlight in in verse, uh, I think it's verse 2 here, what is said. That, That language might sound familiar to you. I think this is really cool. As I was reading some commentaries, uh, this is a a popular verse in the Old Testament, right? This idea of you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Does that sound familiar to you? That is from Exodus 34. And the context of Exodus 34 is, is Moses is meeting with God on Mount Sinai. He's meeting with God, and all the Israelites are down camped below. And God is giving Moses the Ten Commandments, and God's people, like we often do, right, they get really restless. Like, what, what evil behavior can we do? So they decide to make a golden calf. And when Moses comes back down, he sees what they've done. And he's, of course, so disappointed as the leader of these people. But God ultimately forgives them. God forgives them. And then this is what he says about himself in Exodus 34, 6. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is God revealing his own character after the Israelites disobeyed. And that's the verse that Jonah's quoting this morning. And it's interesting because he's quoting a verse that compliments God, right? These are attributes that we love about God, right? And he's throwing it back in God's face. He's saying, I knew that you were gracious. I knew that you were steadfast in love or abounding in love. I knew that you relented from disaster. You can just hear the stink in his voice as he's throwing it back in God's face. Did Jonah just forget? Did he forget that he was just forgiven by God? He was just met by God, given mercy by God in the belly of a fish. And now, days later, he is turning upset that God chose to give that forgiveness to someone else. It reminds me of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. You know that story? It's a parable that Jesus is teaching on forgiveness. He's he's teaching what it means to forgive. And what happens in this story is you have a master, and he is owed a very, very big debt. And the servant begs for mercy, right? I I can't pay you this. Please, please have mercy on your servant. And what the master does is he forgives the servant. And it's like, wow, this is a great story. And then that same servant who was just forgiven goes to a different servant of his that owes him money, way less money, but still owes him money, and he's harsh with him. It's like he forgets that he was just forgiven a great, great debt. And so he's harsh with the servant, and he says, if you can't pay me, I'm going to throw you in prison. 
And what Jesus is trying to to say to to Christians is we have been forgiven much by God, so how can we not go and forgive other people? I think we have a really hard time doing this, right? We're, We're quick to receive forgiveness from God. We love forgiveness. It's great. But we don't like then to give it to other people. Certainly people that are our enemies, right? We don't like to forgive our enemy. But even people that just like disagree with us, even people that have different worldviews than us. And here's how we, we tend to do this. I, I want to unpack this a little bit by using language of those people. So we put ourselves, Brad, I'll just use myself, right? I put myself, Brad, in this category of really, really good, right? And I tend to think of myself as good, and then a lot of other people are just those people. I don't know if you've heard of this kind of goodness scale. It probably has a more official name, but uh, the the theory is if you go and ask someone on a scale of one to 10, how good are you? Everyone says seven. Everyone says seven. It's crazy. I mean, you may get the occasional pompous person who says like an eight or or maybe the self-deprecating person that's in a bad mood that says like a five, but what it reveals is all of us compare ourselves to lesser people and we think we're actually pretty good. I've done this honestly like 20 times and at least 75% of the time people say seven. So just try it on, on your own. Go, go ask someone a fun little assignment. But we tend to place ourselves in a good category and everyone else becomes those people. And who are those people? I would say people obviously that are our enemies but also that just disagree with us. They have a different worldview than us. This can get unpacked in maybe uh, wealth like lower, middle, upper class certainly in race and ethnicity, uh, men and women, and then we can get more specific homeschool, public school, right? We have the ways that we do things, even our sports teams, right? I'm a White Sox fan, I'm a Bears fan, so Cubs fans or Packer fans can be those people, right? I'm a man, so women can be those people. I'm middle class, so upper class can be those people, and it just goes on and on, right? And what happens is we lack sympathy for these other people, because we just consider ourselves better. We even do this with classes of sin. This is ridiculous, but we do this, right? We have our own sin, it's our pet sin, and we've come to terms with it, and we're kind of okay with it. But when you struggle with that sin, you're one of those people, right? You're one of those people. We, we totally do this. You can just think about the examples of, oh, I, I, yeah, I, I, I have a gluttony problem and I struggle with eating too much, but but you're one of those people that drinks too much, right? We just do this. We, we, we categorize uh, levels of, of goodness and with our sin. And when we do that, we forget that we equally need God's grace. We equally need to be forgiven by God. And that's what's happening to Jonah in the story. He's forgetting. He also needs to be rescued. It's very clear, right? He thinks he's deserving and others aren't. His sin is minimal and other people's sin is great, which is my first point this morning, is that we downplay our sin. We downplay our sin. This is perfectly described, I think, in an illustration, and that is from ground level, we have a few different uh, trees, okay? A few different trees, and we like to think of our own sin as that little, like, shrub of a Christmas tree at the bottom, and then the great redwood is other people's sin, right? That's the sin that those people do. So we categorize it like this, and then we think we're pretty good. We all think we're pretty good because we don't do those big bad sins. But when God looks at our sin from above, right, in an aerial view, it's all just a dark blot, right? It all looks the same because it's all rebellion against a holy God. 
God doesn't see these classes of, of sin, and so we have this inaccurate view of our own goodness. And then what happens is we can find it unfair when God shows grace to those people are people that we really believe are undeserving. I, I think that's, that's the kicker, right? Whether it's our enemy or just someone who had what's coming for them. It really, it really is a complexity. Like, it really is that we love to be forgiven, and we will forgive some people, but not other people. Especially when there are enemies. All of us have enemies, right? People who have hurt you very, very deeply or people that just get on your nerves that you don't want to be around. And when they do something to make you angry, you tend to uh, focus on the thing that they did. And, and I did this on Saturday night, so sa- or Saturday really early in the morning in the middle of the night. This comment couldn't get out of my head. And I woke up at 2 a.m., and it's just stirring, right? And, and I'm preaching to myself exactly what I would preach to all of you, right? Pray to it, take it to the cross, you know, pray for this person, yada, yada, yada. But I am, am kind of taking what this person said to me and and negatively applying it to like who they are, forgetting that they're a person that's made in the image of God. They're image bearers, but it's easy for us to reduce them to just how they made us feel. And when we get to this point, right, when we reduce people to how they make us feel, we can actually find a little bit of pleasure when bad things happen to people. The word schadenfreude is a German word. Say that with me, schadenfreude. It's kind of fun to say, right? Schadenfreude is the enjoyment obtained from the troubles of others. Someone actually at Fox Valley Church approached me with this word, saying that this is something that they've struggled with in the past, and so it just really stuck with me, and they said their definition is a form of pleasurable judgmentalism, right? Let's say someone has a different theological view from you, political view from you, COVID-19 view from you, and maybe uh, something happens to them, right, because of this, or they end up on the short side of the stick, and you find a little bit of enjoyment. I think we all can relate to this if you're a sports fan. If you're a sports fan, when the team that you really dislike loses, you find great, great pleasure, right? I, I can relate to that. I find great enjoyment in my partner's struggle when their bad team that I think are bad lose. I think we get pleasure out of the struggle of others because we think they deserve what came to them. And this is Jonah to a T, right? Jonah is assessing who God should have mercy and grace to, and in his assessment, it is not to the Ninevites. Let's keep reading in Jonah verses 4 and 5. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Notice that God is having a conversation with Jonah. I love that God converses with us. I love that he speaks to us. And God's going to try a few different times to help Jonah better understand God's character, right? He's going to come at him a few times. And the first time he does in verse 4, he says, Do you do well to be angry? Some translations say, is it right for you to be angry? And, and Jonah doesn't respond. He just ignores God, right? Not the nicest, you know, silent treatment, not the best way to engage in healthy communication. He ignores God, and instead, in his depressive state, he walks away, and he goes to sit in this, like, shelter, in this booth that he made for himself. And I just kind of picture it on a hill where he's overlooking the city of Nineveh. And, and what is he doing there? He's waiting, and he's hoping, and he's clinging to the hope 
that Nineveh decides they want to eat food again, they want to take their sackcloth off again, they want to worship other gods again, that they turn away from Yahweh. He's just clinging on to hope of that. Just like Sodom and Gomorrah, he's still holding on to hope that they would be overturned. Overturned. I have listened to a bunch of different sermons, and one of the people that have been really influential in just understanding the Bible in general, but also specifically Jonah, is a guy named Tim Mackey, and he unpacked this in such a beautiful way. It was one of the most exciting moments in the study for me. So I, I want you to be excited. Tell me I'm excited. All right, l- listen to what God does here. So um, the word overturned in Hebrew is hafak, hafak, to overturn or overthrow. And it has dual meaning. And so to explain this, um, Tim uses the example of the word destroyed, right? You can have, some, that word can be positive or negative. So my wife uses this as a positive example on Friday night, and I can't remember what she said, but something to the, the degree of like, I destroyed that record, like I beat it in a positive sense. But then it's obvious that it can be used in a negative sense, like you destroyed the turkey on Thanksgiving, you burnt it or whatever, right? And so hafak has the same type of dual meaning. And so I want to show you a couple of scriptures that just bring us into that. In Lamentations 4, 6, it says, the punishment of my people is greater than that of Sodom, which was overthrown, hafak, in a moment. And then in Psalm 30, 11, we have a positive example of this, hafak, turned, overturned my mourning to dancing. So the word has dual meaning. So let me ask you, what do you think Jonah was clinging hope for that God had intended with the word hafak when he preached? It's Sodom and Gomorrah, right? He's sitting watching this saying, send fire from heaven. And yet, maybe what did God have in mind when he said, Nineveh will be overturned? He's turning them toward himself from their evil. It's amazing. And and one thing that I think is really cool is that the Ninevites do get overturned again 150 years later. Their enemies come and take them captive. So however you slice it, the prophecy comes true. God is so creative. I just absolutely love that. He's overturning Nineveh, and he's working on overturning Jonah. Let's go ahead and keep reading verses 6 through 8. Now the Lord God appointed a plant, and it made it come up over Jonah, that he might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort, so that Jonah was exceedingly glad because of, the, because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. I actually take a little bit of humor. I'm going to be totally honest. When people get like a sunburn or something, I think that's kind of how I take a little bit of enjoyment uh, of, of, of bad pleasure, right? And, and that's, I feel for Jonah here, because remember, we speculated that in the acidic underbelly of a fish, that he might have lost the pigment of his skin. So I just picture Jonah as this really pasty white dude, right? And now his shade is gone. It's probably a terrible sunburn, and I'm laughing, and I'm sorry, but not really sorry, I guess. But it's interesting that the only time that Jonah's happy, the only time that language is used, and the only time he really seems to have a positive attitude, at least in the text, is because of this plant. And it's really silly, right? Like, it's just shade. 
but he's exceedingly sad and wants to die before the plant, but then the plant comes, and now, now he's so happy that the plant's here. <laughs> but then the plant withers, and now he wants to die again. It reminds me of, of a roller coaster emotion that like a child goes through, or I don't have teenage kids. Maybe parents of teenagers would say, well, they still do that when they're teenagers, right? But for me, my kids, one moment will be so, so happy, so happy, like, like on cloud nine, and then another moment, they want to die. Their life is over, and, and the easiest illustration for me as a dad to point to is when I take my son Amari to the grocery store, and uh, we have these, da- these dad-son trips, probably like every two months, and we go to Whitman's and we buy too much stuff because I don't have a good enough plan, but I take him in the little buggy cart. Emily teases me for calling it a buggy. She calls it a cart, but I, I get a buggy, and I put him in there, and we just kind of stroll around, and he's so cute. He like waves to other people. He's like the star of the show at Woodman's. And one of the things I found is I like to give him things, right? I like to give him good things. So he's like, that, daddy, that, you know? And um, in terrible parenting decision, I'm like, okay. So I give him one thing as we're going through different aisles. And then he's like, that, daddy. And I'm like, Okay, yeah, I'm feeling like I'm in a good mood. So he's getting veggie straws, he's getting a pouch, he's getting juice, as, and it's all open, right? I'm still going to pay for it, but we're just strolling through Woodman's for like an hour and a half, and Amari has a buffet. And what I find is when I went back the next time to Woodman's and I said, no, and I just kept going, he lost it. He absolutely lost it. And then I had, I think, a pouch in my pocket or something, so I brought that out and I gave it to him, and then he was exceedingly happy again, right? But it's this uh, up and down emotion of a kid. And that's a terrible parenting decision. Don't make the same mistake that I made with giving your kid whatever he wants in a grocery store. I'm a sucker, I guess. But it just points to this up and down emotion. And I think that we as adults do this too, but probably more internally, right? Probably more internally that we can be in a really good mood and someone says something maybe that makes us feel insecure and all of a sudden we're in a terrible mood, but the shade is gone, and he wants to die. And what we see here is that Jonah's anger and his happiness reveals something. This is my second point. What makes you angry and happy both reveal what you love. The things that make you exceedingly upset and angry and the things that make you exceedingly happy both point to one thing, what you love. Right? What made Jonah exceedingly angry was God giving forgiveness to those people, to evil people. But what made Jonah exceedingly happy was shade, comfort. And they both revealed that he loved himself. And that's my Jonah moment this morning. My aha moment is that Jonah only loves himself. Jonah only loves himself. And church, I got to come forward and, and just be really honest with you. And that is... From week one of this series, I was telling you, this series, it's, it's about Jonah, but really not. It's really about us, right? And I believe that's true. Like, I totally believe that's true. But I struggled in many ways to actually see myself as Jonah, which probably just means I'm all the more like Jonah, right? But I'm struggling. I'm like, I don't want anything bad to happen to anybody. I want everybody to be saved. You know, like, I'm thinking these thoughts in my head. And so what I did was, I, I got, I was in my bed. I woke up really early one morning, and it's probably why God woke me up. But I'm just sitting there, and I'm like, God, I know this is about me. Like, I know it is, so just bring it. Like, tell me, how am I like Jonah? I want this Jonah moment to be, like, really personal. How am I like Jonah? And, and I sat there, and nothing came after a couple minutes, but I kept just listening. And then God spoke. 
He said, you're like Jonah because you love yourself. You're like Jonah because you love yourself. What makes you angry is when people disagree with you, when people don't do what you want them to do. And what makes you happy is when you feel comfortable and when you feel like everyone's doing and playing the part that they're supposed to play, like, like I have the corner market on fair and unfair and what's right and not right. And that's what Jonah's doing. He's saying, I know who should be forgiven and the Ninevites shouldn't. So ultimately, I think what this communicated to me was that I think I'm on the throne. That I think I'm on the throne. I have a picture here to just kind of show you. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but the story of Jonah, right, is ridiculous. Like, there's so much humor in it, and I thought this actually fit perfectly um, to, to come in. It's kind of funny, too. I was wearing flip-flops, and my wife was like, that looks ridiculous. So she photoshopped, like, brown shoes in there, you know? Advantages of having uh, a wife who does design. But I know, it's so ridiculous. But th this is the truth. Like, metaphorically, every day when I wake up, I kind of have the decision. Am I going to be on the throne, or am I going to step off and let God do what God wants to do? And I think we all do that to some degree, right? We all choose to do what we want to do, what, to what makes us feel good. We want glory for ourselves rather than for God, I wondered, too, with Jonah, if he felt like if all these people repented, repented when, when Jonah said destruction's coming, would it have made him look bad? I mean, I'm just speculating, but would it have made him look like, wow, you gave this prophecy, and that's your job, and they didn't listen? I don't know. But I think about that would have given God a lot of glory, and Jonah just a very, well, the opposite of glory. God's trying to help Jonah here get off his metaphorical throne, and so he engages him a third time. Let's finish the book, starting with verse 9. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. It's so funny, right, that he has to add in the cattle in there, the cows. But here's what God is saying. He's approaching Jonah. He's approaching Jonah in amazing kindness and tenderness. I want you to to take away from this specific, this chapter, the whole book, these verses, God is so tender toward us, okay? He approaches Jonah, and, and he could have totally just killed Jonah. I mean, that, like, Jonah is being angry and defiant against God, and, and that's really what Jonah deserved, but, but God, he reaches into Jonah, and, and he sees that Jonah has this connection to this plant, right? He's showing concern for something that perished, and so God uses those emotions, even though they seem very irrational, right? God uses those emotions and his feelings. He, he gives it to him. He grants it to him. And so he says, okay, Jonah, if you're concerned about a plant, it's only been around for a few hours, that you had no involvement with, shouldn't I be concerned with something or someone that's far more significant? Like, Jonah, should I be concerned with 120,000 people? who are made in my image, who I love just as much as I love you, Jonah? 
he's using Jonah's ridiculous emotion to show that, that Jonah, you're just as misguided as the Ninevites. You have this anger, this hate in your heart. Jesus would talk about this topic of loving your enemies. In fact, it's, it's really a huge foundational point on the whole gospel. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But we struggle with this gospel truth, forgiveness of one's enemy. But that's what Jesus did for us on the cross. Romans 3.23, all have fallen short, right? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were all enemies to God, and we all need God's grace. That's my last point this morning. We all need God's grace. And let me just add to that equally. We all equally need God's grace. You don't don't need God's grace less than someone else who's messed up a lot worse than you. We all equally need God's grace. So where does the story end, right? We We don't see Jonah respond. He doesn't say anything. It's kind of like a cliffhanger. And I think that's intentional, right? Because we find out that the story really isn't about Jonah. The story is about God's love and compassion for all people and the way that we as God's people respond to that love and compassion for all people. That God loves your enemy as much as he loves you. That the God of Israel is also the God of the entire world. And that you and I have messed up and that we don't deserve God's forgiveness you have no moral high ground to stand on this morning, church, on your own. None. And that might just be the thing that is kind of your, your stink, right? It's because you don't do bad things to other people outwardly, but in your heart, you think you're way better than them. And that's just as bad of a way to live as a Christian. Right? We've come to a place where we recognize our sin, our shortfall, understanding that you and I are not on the throne. You and I are not the center of the movie with God being an extra. This is God's story, and we get to play a part in it. And like Jonah, we have to decide, right? Are we going to, keeping that illustration, are we going to be on the throne, or are we going to let God lead us, right? His plans and his purposes for our life, which again, don't involve you and I being super comfortable. They, They don't always involve you and I being super happy. They're to mold and shape you into the image of Jesus, God is so kind in this story, church. God is so, I've never been so much in love with the kindness of God in my whole life as I've been preaching this. It's amazing how tender he is, that when I'm defiant, he just approaches me gently in grace, right? It's amazing. And this morning, if you're here, and you're on your throne, or you're here, and you've never given your life to Jesus, I want to invite you to surrender that this morning. I want to invite you to take this opportunity to let God lead your life. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, you'll be saved. We have to recognize that we're not good enough on our own, that we needed rescue, right? And that's what God did. He sent his son down, his son, to pay the price for our sin. And he lived the perfect life that we couldn't live so that we could have eternal life if we trust in him. Would you pray with me? Father, God, you are so good, and you are so kind. Thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you for your gentle rebukes, God, that we see in the book of Jonah. Thank you for the way that your scripture teaches us about your character and who you are and and helps us understand the purpose for our life, which is so much bigger than ourselves, God. It's so much grander, and I pray we would embrace that and and that we would truly let you, God, lead our lives 
this morning, if we've never put our faith in you, we would say, God, I want you to lead me. I believe that you did these things for my life. I know I'm a sinner and I need rescuing. And God, we would all walk away knowing that the grace of God was for us. And God, it's amazing and we choose to worship you in light of that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite Tom up. I think he told me earlier, he's like, I want to ask you a couple questions at the end of your message. So I was like, all right. So go ahead and come on up, Tom, and uh, I guess have at it. Hey, can you just thank Brad for this series? <clears throat> and, and I got to give a shout out to Emily, too. You know, when all this happens and, you know, you ask someone to preach, it shakes up all their routines. And uh, that's true. So, so yeah. that, that's been uh, a, a big part. Appreciate it. And yeah. uh, it was enabling me to go on vacation and not worry about it and yeah. uh, be also able to uh, watch it online. So I caught the series. Uh, so, did so you learn something? I did. <laughs> okay, good. That's good. I did, but I'm doing the interview and you're doing the question. Sorry. (laughs) But if you want to do an interview, ask me how I rate myself. How do you rate yourself? I rate myself a seven. Really? (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Uh, So, so Brad, obviously, you know, it's been a month-long series. Mm. Uh, The book of Jonah is awesome. I've I've Mm -hmm. preached it. I've studied it. And every time I... I learned more, hmm. but for yourself, as you studied, as you preached, as you went deeper into it, what was a takeaway uh, for you that you just hmm. was like, wow, that, this changed my life? Hmm. Yeah, there's so many. I mean, today, obviously, sharing the Jonah moment, right? This idea of, like, me on the throne, <laughs> like, God really revealing to me that I love myself. And that's a, that's a really hard thing to like take mm-hmm. in and, and deal with. I mean, I think that comes out in maybe small ways that I've justified in the past and I want to I mm-hmm. stop that. But what really, yeah, it, if I could say one thing that's resonated with me the most is this idea that we and God have competing visions of life. Mm-hmm. That I, I'll take myself personally, my wife and I have three kids and we love them, but some of you that know our story, we got all three kids in one year. And that is not the vision I had for my life at all, mm. right? I, I love them to death, and it's good, but that is not the vision I had for my life. And I just think it comes to a place of saying, am I willing to trust that God only has like, what's good for me, right? Mm. And, and to step off this metaphorical throne and let God lead me when it's hard, mm. when it's difficult, but knowing that his way is the best way, yeah. and knowing that He's, he's got mission in mind. He's got a grand vision that right. I can't even see, but I get to be a part of. And I mm-hmm. think that's what I'm still, right, wrestling right. with, but that's really spoken to me. Well, let me just say you'll wrestle with that the rest of your life. So yeah. God bless you. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, uh, I, I do, uh, this might be old school, but uh, as you're preaching uh, the last couple of weeks while I was here, uh, I do take notes. I yeah, actually, I saw that. You write down there? That, yeah, that encourages yeah. me. Thank you. Uh, well, I, I share this with everybody because I think sometimes we just rely on listening and we walk out of here and sometimes it's like, okay, what was said? And we, we don't even think about it. But yeah. when you talked about this idea of loving ourselves more, uh, the word I wrote in my notes on the margin was uh, how self-centered hmm. it, it's easy to become. We just mm. orient our world. And I loved what you said about that. that yeah. mm. You know, you put yourself on the throne, and I'm like, yeah, we, we do mm. that. Well, yeah. Uh, 
obviously we could ask a lot of questions, but Brad, we got an online uh, community. We have people here. What is one takeaway you would want for our online community, everybody here to say, boy, if, if, if this teaching of Jonah had one main thing I'd love for people to grab hold of. Hmm. My first thought is, how can I put five things into one sentence? Right? <laughs> um, if anyone can, you could. Yeah. Um, wow. I, I would say there's an, an area in each of our life where we're probably not willing to follow God. Mm -hmm. And for some of us, it might be in a lot of areas. For some of us, it's this one tiny area. And this letting go of your own vision, yourself on the throne, right, to keep that metaphor going, and living for God's plans and purposes. Even if it's one small area, it's one small sin that you don't think is a big deal. Mm -hmm. um, God wants to overturn that, right, and, and use that in, in your life to, like, his mission. At Fox Valley, we say we're at our best hmm. when we surrender our time, our talents, our treasures, our possessions for the plans and purposes of God. Something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. And I would just encourage you that, that you, your best life is surrendering to God. Hmm. Even if it's a different vision, it doesn't sound good, it doesn't sound comfortable, it is the most abundant life on this side of eternity. Wow. So maybe right now, you know, you hear Pastor Brad talking about this. What is that one thing? Can you get something in your mind right now, that one thing hmm. that you tend to control or hold on to, uh, hmm. kind of like Amari in the Woodman store, right? Yeah. <laughs> He's got his mind set on something. Yeah. Uh, so that's a good takeaway. You know, God is always doing hmm. thousands of things that we'll never see and we'll never know. And, and you need to have that confidence right now that God is at work in your life. He's stirring affections. He's stirring things. Mm -hmm. And God is at work 